I, I really wish that we could spend more time in this passage. We've been in, this is our fourth Sunday now. I had expected to get through it in three, but it's so good. I love these parables. I love Christ's emphasis. I love his call to sinners. How can you, how can you not, you know, reading Luke 15, how can you not love his love for sinners? Knowing that he, his love here is, is for all, for for every kind of sinner, for the one who is reckless in his sin and reduced to nothing, and at the same time, the one who believes that his righteousness deserves everything. And Jesus is calling all to himself. Um, it, it doesn't get much better than Luke 15. This is part two of the parable that usually gets called the parable of the prodigal son even though, as we pointed out last week, that's rather misnamed because there are two sons and Jesus is calling to both. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that we would recognize the sin of our hearts for what it is. Lord, we all have the prodigal heart, we also, every one of us has the proud heart. We all have the roots of of self-righteousness within us. But Lord, I pray that no one would stop. Yes, I pray we would recognize our sin for what it is, but I pray that we would not stop with that recognition, but that we would all realize that there is a Savior in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that each one, everyone without exception, would rise up from where they are and go to Christ. Knowing, Father, that there is a home there for us and a happy home with a good and merciful Father. And you are, Father, ready and you're awaiting to run to the sinner who comes home. So may we all come home and rejoice in other sinners who join us there in the Father's house. I pray these things in Jesus' name, asking, Father, for the fullness of your Holy Spirit for all of us now as we consider your word. Amen. It is uh, pretty easy for us to forget the kindness of Jesus to the Pharisees 
You know, really, Jesus is always kind to the Pharisees, even if we wouldn't say he is being nice to the Pharisees, even if we would say he's not being pleasant to them. Usually, when we see Jesus encountering them and uh, dialoguing with them, there is an amount of, there is often an amount of anger in Christ against them that he directs toward them with condemnation. Um, John the Baptist and Jesus both called the Pharisees and scribes, you brood of vipers. So just think about these words for a moment. We wouldn't call these words very nice, but I'm submitting to you that they are very kind words because they are exactly what the Pharisees needed to hear. He said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, I don't imagine that Jesus said that in a very monotone way or in a very pleasant sounding way because that would, those words and pleasantness wouldn't fit together, but with a sense of earnestness and urgency and I believe anger as well, his righteous anger. So sometimes, often, I think that we tend to think of his relationship with the Pharisees and scribes as being always unpleasant always not nice, and we can easily forget the the kindness and the very different tone that Jesus takes with them in Luke chapter 15. At the same time, I don't know anybody else who could do this, but with, I mean, obviously not, you know how I'm saying that. Um, but at the same time that Jesus indicts these Pharisees for their self-righteousness, he invites them in to the Father's house. He indicts them and invites them at the same time. And his tone here is not one of anger. His, his tone here is warm. It is compassionate. And it is pleading. He is pleading with the Pharisees to recognize who they are. To realize that they are self-righteous and they need a Savior just as much as the tax collectors and the sinners. So today we're, we're wrapping up Luke chapter 15. And let me just um, set up the context again. All of this goes back to verse 1. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 15, we can, can forget how this started off. Remember, there were tax collectors and there were sinners drawing near to Jesus. The most notorious group groups of people that you could find in Israel's life. And when Jesus received them gladly and freely ate with them, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled against him. And that's what launched Jesus into this series of parables. Three parables that each had this design to show that there is a God in heaven who obsessively seeks sinners and excessively rejoices when they are found, as only God can. As only God can search, and as only God can rejoice. And this is true even for those who are self-righteous. The point of these parables is to show us that there is no love in all the world like the love of God for sinners, even for those who are self-righteous. 
Who is self-righteous? What is self-righteousness? It's really a self-explanatory phrase, isn't it? It's for those who, who believe that they are right in themselves. That they are good enough to merit the favor of God. And there's all kinds of ways, and we'll talk about this, all kinds of ways that this self-righteousness can manifest itself. There's various symptoms, and we can, we can recognize them in the story, but the real challenge is not to recognize them in the elder son. The real challenge to you and to me is to recognize the symptoms of self-righteousness in our own hearts. Because church family, you don't want this heart. You do not want to be where these Pharisees were. If you have this heart condition, you have a fatal heart condition. I can't think of a a worse predicament, a worse place to be in than to be in the place of self-righteousness. It is the most dangerous, perilous place to be. So uh, let me summarize this story and then we're going to concentrate on the latter part. Uh, summarize, let me summarize the first part. Remember, the father of this story, who represents God, clearly, he is a nobleman with two sons, a landowner, and has a very generous and very kind and loving heart. He has two sons. When the younger son is finally sick and tired of waiting around for his father to die, he says so, demanding that he get his share of the inheritance now. This was not a conventional means of receiving your inheritance. This was vile. This was wicked. He was saying to his father, I don't want you. I want your gifts. He would rather have his father dead, but he is tired of waiting for it. So he demands that he get his share of the inheritance, and once he receives his portion, he sells it off, and he goes off to a far country, and he squanders every last cent in reckless living. Reckless living, the Bible says. And then right after that, after he is completely out, the country suffers famine, meaning that this land that he has depleted of pleasures is now out of provision, the most basic provision too. And so very quickly, this young man is reduced to nothing. He manages to get a job, but it's a job that doesn't pay him even enough to eat, to buy food. So all that he has basically is a place to stay. And just think about how far this young man has fallen. Whereas before he had been envious of what his father had, now he is envious of what the pigs have. That's how far he has fallen. But right then and there, when he, and when he's at the bottom, he, the Bible says he comes to himself. He has this moment of clarity and he realizes what a wicked and foolish son he has been. And he resolves to go back to his father because his father is good and his father is kind and he is going to repent to his father and confess his sin and confess his unworth and request a servant's work for a servant's wage. So he goes back. But the Bible says, while he's still far off, his father sees him as though he has been watching down the road, 
just waiting for that figure that he will know as soon as it comes over the horizon. And he sees him far way off. He is filled with compassion. And he runs to his son. He embraces him and he kisses him. And the son gets into his repentant speech. But the father cuts him off halfway. He doesn't get through what he had been rehearsing. And he demands that immediately his servants restore his son to the best of everything. And so they kill the fat, fattened calf and they begin to celebrate. There is music and there is dancing. And the sound of this reaches the ears of the elder son who is on his way back from the fields where he has been working like the good boy that he is. He asks about it in the verses that we just read, 25 through 28, and a servant tells him what has been going on. Your father has received your brother back safe and sound and he has killed the fattened calf and and they're celebrating. Now the elder son has a choice. Is he going to go in and share in the joy or not? And it's definitely not. He's not going to go in and rejoice over his brother's return? What could be worse than his brother's return? One thing, really. Celebrating his brother's return. Throwing a party and celebrating his brother. That's the one thing that could be worse, and there's no way that he is going to go inside. This is, uh, the Bible says in verse 28 that the father comes out and he entreats his son to come in. He entreats his son. Do you remember in the previous two parables, that the man who had recovered his lost sheep and the woman who had recovered her lost coin, both of them went to their neighbors and they said, I, I found what I had lost. Join me. Join me in, in celebrating this, this recovery, this rescue. And this is what is happening here. The, the, the father is now entreating his older son to come in and to share in his joy. But the older son, with this entreaty, he has, he has reached the boiling point. And he explodes in self-righteous anger. Let's read these verses again, 29 and 30. He says, look. It's a very condescending look. Let me explain it to you. <laughs> See if you can... See how I'm seeing it. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You you killed the fattened calf for him. You didn't even give a goat. All I'm asking for is a goat. Did I Did I ever get a goat? But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Wow. Talk about true colors. Do you see what his words reveal? All of the toil, all of the commitment, all of the faithfulness over all those years, all of the good was good only on the surface. It was good only on the surface. The elder son doesn't love his father. 
In fact, he despises his father. All through the years where it seemed to be that, you know, the, the older son was walking the, the straight and narrow and the younger son was running down the broad road that leads to destruction. All those years, they weren't any different. Where it matters, where it counts, they weren't any different at all. Because neither son loved the father for the father's sake. They didn't love him for him. All that they loved and all that they wanted was what the father had. That's what was in both of their hearts. Now, the the crucial, the difference between the two was that what the younger son openly expressed, give me what is coming to me, you know, give me, give me, give me, what he openly expressed, the elder son kept bottled up. And now it comes out. The younger son had been openly wicked. His older brother just hid that darkness in his heart. The younger son knew what he was doing the whole time was wrong. But the older brother was convinced that his attitude, his actions, everything was right. Both of them needed to repent. But here's what Jesus is getting at and what is really obvious when we think about it. Who is more likely to repent? Both of them need to repent. But who is more likely? The one who has been reckless and knows that his recklessness has brought him to nothing or the one who is absolutely convinced that his righteousness merits everything? Who is more likely to repent? So his father's joy over the younger son's return has really shaken this older brother. And now the, the top blows off and just uh, the, the truth comes out in a torrent and his, his true colors show. He is so furious. Look over these verses. You know, through these, uh, through this passage, um, we, we have the name Father all over the place. From, uh, the very beginning. But do you notice that now here the older son refuses even to call him Father? That might seem like just a, a slip or a coincidental om- omission, but it's not. He just simply addresses his father as you. He won't call him by the name that he is to him. And when he talks about his younger brother, he refuses to to call him my brother. He just says, this son of yours. As though he, so he is so furious at his father and he so despises his younger brother that he refuses to acknowledge their names. And he is really placing all of the blame for what is going on and what has gone on for all the years at his father's feet. He's saying, this son of yours, he's yours. He's not mine. I don't claim him. You can have him all you want. But look at what this son of yours did. Do you see here what from this story what the self-righteous have going on in their hearts? I, I think that when we think about what his argument is, In my flesh, I have a lot of sympathy for what he is saying, honestly. But let's think about what the self-righteous have going on in their hearts. They believe 
that they deserve better than what they have. Number one, they believe they deserve better than what they have. And second, they believe that others have it better than what they deserve. They believe that they deserve better than what they have. And as far as others go, they believe that they have better than what they deserve. And that's exactly how this this elder brother is thinking of it. No matter how much good he has done, he deserves better. He has done so much for so long and he doesn't even have a goat to show for it. That's the least thing that he deserves, really. Just think of how he must be thinking. That's the least thing he deserves. And his father won't even give him that much. He has nothing to show for all the good that he has done. But on the other hand, the younger brother took his father's wealth and wasted it on the most vile living. And when he returns in rags, empty-handed, the father actually gives him more. More. I mean, just think about how preposterous that is. And just so we're clear, you know, you can just hear him in your head. So much more than he ever gave to him. The younger son, is be- it's like he is being rewarded for his evil and wasting everything. And the older son is being punished for all of his good. I mean, you think about that, think of it from this angle. If the younger brother already received his share of the estate, then who does the rest belong to? Who stands to gain the rest? The older brother. Now what is the father doing? Killing the fattened calf and giving it in celebration of the younger son. Wait a second. That's mine. This is mine. This is what I stand to receive. This is what I have earned. And you're giving it away to my younger brother after he has already wasted everything you've given to him? Tell me this doesn't make sense. I mean, his argument is very sound, isn't it? It feels like an airtight argument. And so he is saying that from every angle that you look at this, this is inexcusable. This is unjust. How will the father respond? There's a bunch of different ways. He could say, oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about it like that. Or he could say, Quit your whining. But look at what he says in verses 31 and 32. Son. See, he calls him son. His his son wouldn't call him father, but he says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the father answers both of his son's frustrations. What are his two frustrations? He believes that he deserves better than what he has. And he also believes about his younger brother that he has better than what he deserves. So he answers both of those things. The son was whining over a goat. But the father is telling him, you have everything. And he's not throwing that in his face. 
He is saying, all that is, all that is mine is yours. You, you want a goat? You have the whole. It's all yours. There was nothing that the father withheld from his son. And concerning his brother, he had been brought from death to life. He had been lost, but was found. Think about this. It would be like getting Cain and Abel back. I mean, for Adam and Eve, it would be like getting Cain, who was lost to them, back. And Abel, who had died, resurrected again. It's like, why? how could you not celebrate? He is resurrected and He has returned home. Now, how the older son responds to all of this, Jesus doesn't say. It's open-ended. We were... Uh, it is amazing to me. We were, we were studying, um, uh, Jonah in Sunday school this morning, and it's amazing to me how parallel these two stories are with Jonah being so self-righteous and not wanting to go after the Ninevites and really hating the Ninevites. And when they received mercy, he is furious, just like the older brother with his younger brother. And that story too is open-ended, isn't it? Jonah doesn't end with a nice, wrapped-up, neat conclusion. We don't know if, like the author of the Sunday School lesson said, did he end up dying on that hill, angry and self-righteous? Or did he realize the error of his way and return to God? It's the same way here. Jesus leaves the story open-ended. Why? Because he is pleading with everyone who is self-righteous. He is, on behalf of his Father, looking into the eyes of these grumbling scribes and Pharisees around him. And he is saying, All that the Father has is yours. It is fitting to celebrate the tax collector and the sinner coming home to God. And don't you realize your sin? And don't you realize your need to come home too? It's open-ended because we don't know how they responded. And it's really coming at you and it's coming at me. How will we respond? Do we realize our sin? Listen, do you realize your sin? Do you realize your prodigal heart? How we sung a while ago, we chase the world and forget your grace. And at the same time, you know, you can be singing that song and thinking, yeah, I hope so-and-so is paying attention because I know that they've been chasing the world lately. And then we have the proud heart. And we have the pharisaical heart. That was my only regret in singing that song, that everything was... And sometimes this stress is right. Very, I mean, nothing wrong with the song. Everything was we and our. We chase the world. We forget your grace. And I wanted to sing in those words. I want to sing, I chase the world and I forget your grace. Shine into my night. Do we... Realize our sin. Do you realize your sin? But don't just look at your heart. Look at the Father. Hear His kind and His pleading word. And know that He, just as much as He wants to receive and to celebrate the younger son coming home, He wants the older brothers too. He wants the proud and He wants the self-righteous and He wants them inside. He wants to give them mercy and He wants to give them grace. As we close uh, things here this morning, I say close and 
you know that's a loose term. <laughs> okay. I, I want us to talk for a minute about these symptoms of self-righteousness that we see in this story so that we can gauge our own hearts. So let me give us uh, a few. Um, first of all, self-righteous hearts look at others to justify themselves. It would almost seem like the self-righteous are in a constant state of comparison, condescension, and criticism. And when fallen sinners do repent, the self-righteous don't rejoice. They don't rejoice because they are afraid that they are going to lose their superiority and their one-upmanship. And if the sinner begins to manifest repentance, the self-righteous will reflexively shoot it down. They might not admit it, but they're actually hopeful that they don't repent. The self-righteous would rather the sinner rot in unrepentance than come home to God because they are always comparing themselves with the sinner and they want to feel they they want to be on that higher level. They want to feel better about themselves. They want to to condescend and to criticize. I I have to be careful with 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 sharing this with you because I think that this is awful, and I know you're going to think this is awful. But I don't want to be guilty of self righteousness when I say how self righteous I know a person uh, to be. I I know a parent who um, will very vocally. Uh, confess faith in Jesus um, adamantly, talk in a, a, a godly fashion and, and all of that, but has a, a wayward child, very wayward for many years, who came home to Jesus and called home to say, I've come to faith in Jesus. And that parent refused to take their call and felt very vindicated in doing so. And we think, how awful. Yes, how awful. But that is what years and years of self-righteousness will do to a heart that they can't even recognize how awful that actually is. So, first of all, you can see from the older brother, he's he is looking at his younger brother to justify himself. He is comparing, he is condescending, and hypercritical. Second, self-righteous people, and this will be short, they just basically lack joy. They don't have that fundamental, deep, lasting joy. The older brother is happy only when he believes that he is getting his due, what he deserves. And since um, since receiving what he deserves is relatively rare, so is his happiness. True joy will always be out of reach for the self-righteous because their joy is never in God. Third, self-righteous people have very little sympathy for sufferers. And I think that this one will hit home to us all. So I ask you to pay close attention here. Not that I'm thinking, I hope they're paying attention because they need to repent. Even innocent sufferers, they are likely to blame. Just like Job's friends. What did you do? 
You know, you're sick. You lost your job. <laughs> you're, you're in desperate times. What did you do? Just come out and admit it. Even innocent sufferers, they are likely to blame, but they are completely without mercy for those who are to blame. Their mind is this. You made your bed. Now sleep in it. That's the mind of the self-righteous. I want to go back to the younger son a moment. Why was he reduced to feeding pigs and being envious of pigs? He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That he was in the wrong place was his own doing. He went to that place with eyes wide open. But then immediately, as soon as he was out of anything to buy pleasures with, famine struck. So it's like the the place he had all the foresight in the world to know he shouldn't be there. But what he couldn't foresee happened at the same time. He did the sin, but he didn't do the famine. And this will often be the case for sufferers. And this is something I think that we we don't think about very often. But it's very clear in this parable. So consequences he could have foreseen, he brought on his own head. Circumstances that he couldn't foresee piled on top. But I think that one thing that we can get from this parable is that we don't need to decide which is which. Which suffering is their own doing and which suffering isn't. Because it's often the case, again, that there were many consequences they just brought down on their own head and could have known, should have known, probably knew, but didn't care. And then something else piled on top. So the older brother says he shouldn't have been there. Correct. Amen to that. He shouldn't have been there. That was the, fa- for <laughs> the factor that he could foresee it was wrong. That he had nothing was his own doing. But there was another circumstance outside of his control that he didn't count on, couldn't have counted on, that came down on his head. And my question is this. If every sin of mine impoverished me, materially speaking, where would I be? If every sin led to those kinds of consequences where I'm in the field with pigs, envious of what they're eating, where would I be? I would have starved to death and it would have happened a long time ago. The younger brother had one kind of sin and it led to his poverty. The older brother had another kind of sin and it didn't hurt his bottom line at all. And that's one of the reasons why the younger son type will be more quickly to repent because they come to their end, the end of their rope in numerous ways. Whereas the moralistic person, the self-righteous person, hard-working person, church-attending person, their sin doesn't hurt them in that way. So the sufferer may have a different hurt, but he has the same heart. He may have a different hurt, but he has the same heart. A heart that needs to hear the kindness of God and go home repentant to be received. That's what we all have. We have a heart, every one of us, who needs to hear the kindness of God. 
Each of us must realize our own sin, rise up from where we are, and go home repentant. So my question to you as we wrap this up is, who is going to be like the Father who is standing there outside at the end of His driveway looking down the road, so ready for the prodigal to come home, waiting just to drop everything and run to the Son when He comes home? Who will be like the, the Father who welcomes the sinners home and invites others to share in His joy? You see, here is one test if we are a sinner who has come home. Are we welcoming others inside too? Are we sharing in their the joy of their repentance? Or are we constantly suspicious, nitpicky, hypercritical, condescending? And we say, yeah, right, I've seen that before. I've heard that, yeah, they're going to change whatever. And all of that, you made your bed sleep in it kind of thinking. We've all had these thoughts. We all have the self-righteousness, the root of self-righteousness within us. But I want you, as as we do close now, for real, this time, um, I want you to remember the Father's words. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You remember what the self-righteous think? I deserve better than what I have. Who cares? I mean, who really gives a rip? What we have, don't have, whatever, as far as material things go, all that the Father has is yours? Are you kidding me? His house and His kingdom are yours. His Son is the true elder brother who goes after His younger brother who is so reckless. He has searched and He has found you dead in the guilt of your sin, ready to be killed for your crimes and He has stepped into your place and He has taken your judgment and He has taken it all so that He poured out His life's blood that you may be redeemed, that you might have everything that is in the Father's house. All that the Father has is yours by grace, not by works of righteousness which we have done, not by birthright, not by works right, none of it. We don't deserve a thing except the judgment of God. But He has poured out His grace on us in Jesus Christ, our older brother, so that all the immeasurable riches of God's grace are given to us in His kindness. And that is our glorious future for all the coming ages that He will show us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. I pray that that news, that Word from God fills your heart with so much joy that you go out and you share that good news with the older brothers and the younger brothers out there. The prodigals and the Pharisaic. Both of them, and tell them that they may be on the receiving end of the Father's kindness too. They may come in. 
they may have a home. And they may have a happy home with God. If they will leave their sin behind, trust in God's good heart, and lean all on His Son. Let's pray. Father, Your kindness. Lord, we have, we have words, but our words aren't enough. Even, even this picture, Lord, of this generous, merciful Father, You are, you are beyond Him. The, the symbol here is not as great as the reality. The reality of Your love is beyond all of our comprehension. And so I pray, Father, that we would have all joy in our hearts knowing who we are to You. Who we are who have come home. You sought us. You found us. You carried us home. You paid the price in Your Son to reconcile us to Yourself. And all we are is beggars. If You didn't tell us, we wouldn't even know our need. We wouldn't even know that we are bankrupt and poor and lost. But You told us the truth of our hopelessness. And You tell us the good news in so many different ways. So we thank You. And I pray, my Father, that we would have the love in our hearts and the courage in our hearts to not stand keeping this news to ourselves. I pray that we would broadcast it. Patiently, humbly, courageously, wisely, lovingly. I pray that we would tell the good news just as Jesus did. We have freely received Your love. Now I I pray, Father, that freely we would tell of it. Help us. In Christ's name, Amen.